Great. Hey, speaking of uh, Mike Conley, obviously he's not making the all-star team. Uh, Devin Booker is the fill-in for Anthony Davis. Um, heartbreaking for Mike Conley, but to help us break it down more, to uh, help us understand if we have a reason to be salty or not, is, of course, Dan Clayton of Salt City Hoops joining us here on the uh, Full Court Press. Dan, thanks for your time. Great to have you. How are you? Hey, we could always be salty. We're in Salt Lake City. Or, you know, <laughs> That's true. So it's, uh, it's good to be back, fellas. Um, hope you've been well, and uh, yeah, exciting times for uh, Jazz fans. It it is, but let's get with the depressing stuff first because obviously I've been nicknamed Debbie Downer today. So Mike Conley doesn't make the All Star team. Devin Booker does replace him. <laughs> if there's one person who shouldn't have been on the All Star team that Mike Conley should have replaced, it would be. You know, I like I think when you get down to that tier. So like, let's start with this. There are probably like fifteen, sixteen guys who are quote-unquote worthy of all-star selections, right? So there's just not enough spots, and someone worthy is going to get left off. So all the guys who were chosen originally are worthy. Devin Booker is worthy. Mike Conley is worthy. When you get down to the, to the end of the list there, I think it becomes a little bit about, you know, eye of the beholder. And, you know, for me, like, I get the argument behind each of these guys. I get that the argument for, for Devin Booker is that he averages 25 points on a team that's, 20 and 10 and has won 12 of its last 14 games. Like I get that. I get that the argument for Zion Williamson is that he averages 24 and eight and he's an exciting, fun young player, even though he's on a losing team for my money. I take Mike Conley because I think the impact is there and what he delivers to winning is there. Um, you know, my, so, so in a word, like to answer your question directly, I think my answer is Zion. I think this was probably too early for Zion to make the all-star team, especially when his team is, you know, still struggling, relatively speaking. Well, I thought it was curious that uh, our good friend Tony Jones spoke out against Zion, that he shouldn't be there, and then he deleted his tweet. And now he won't say who <laughs> who, who should not be named as an all-star, who currently is. So I don't know what kind of pressure he was getting. But I'm with you. I think that winning should matter for something. And I got to ask: Is that time that Mike Connolly had to be out because of his hamstring? Could that have potentially hurt his chances of making the All Star game? I mean, maybe because I, I mean, like, like as with anything, there's a little bit of recency bias, right? So, like, I don't think he missed enough games to where that quote unquote disqualified him. But maybe you know, like the Suns in recent weeks. Like I say, they're on a twelve and two. Spurt. They're playing really good basketball, and, and Devin Booker has been scoring really well during that and shooting really well. So maybe, you know, the fact that while that's been happening, Mike has missed some games just was enough to, to you know, tilt things in Devin Booker's favor. Although, again, it wasn't the coach vote that got Devin Booker in. It was, it was Adam Silver's appointment as an injury replacement. So, you know, look, I have no problem with Booker being named an all-star. Like I said, I think all these guys were talking about are all-stars if we examine their case in a vacuum. I think for me, the tough part with Booker is that the Suns, and again, they're 20 and 10. They're the fourth seed. I get it. They're good. The Suns play better basketball, just slightly, but still they play better basketball when Devin Booker sits down. And that to me is a little problematic in terms of an all-star case. Now, mostly that's because of the defensive side of the ball and how much do people care about that when you're talking about all-star selections. Maybe the answer is not that much, right? Because he scores the ball and that's all people care about. But they are, their, their net rating, their, their efficiency differential, you know, their points per 100 minus their opponent's points per 100 is two points worse when Devin Booker is on the court versus when he's out of the game. And, and you know, again, whatever. He scores a lot of points. He, 
He's a huge threat. He's the most schemed for player on the fourth seeded team. So I get that. Uh, you know, for me, I would take a guy who makes his team better, you know, especially when that team is the, is the best team in the league right now. Well, let's get to the good news, and there's plenty of it, as you mentioned, uh, Dan, with the Jazz being having the best record in the NBA right now, uh, probably the best six-man of the year, best coach of the year, best defensive player of the year, so on and so forth. But what has stood out to you about this Jazz team that maybe sets or separates them from last year's Jazz team? Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this team and, and what bodes well for their future, right, is, is um, the fact that they can win in a bunch of different ways. So obviously they've had nights where they just shoot the lights out. You know, the other night against Charlotte, they set yet another franchise record for three-pointers in a game, shattering a record that had stood for exactly 17 days. <laughs> so, you know, they're just they're shooting the ball really well. They have a lot of scoring options. They can do that. But on a night when that's not working, they can defend their way to a win. You know, they're comfortable playing at different paces. They can move the ball, but when a team's denying that, they can, you know, get into some of their counters and, and they have enough guys who can create their own shot that they can play that way when they need to. So I think that's what's really impressive and what, and what elite teams have to do. Like the Jazz have been a very good team for a lot of years, really the entire Quinn Snyder era. They've been a, a good to very good team. I think great teams, when you talk about teams that can find a way to get four wins in a seven game series, they're the teams that, you know, can can still figure it out when something isn't going their way. That's what playoff basketball is. That's two teams trying to take away what the what makes the other team good. And so, you know, I like the fact that they can go to plan B, plan C, plan D and still produce good solid outcomes. Um and that's and you know, again, not only does that I think speak to their contender credentials, but it's it's what definitely makes them a better team from last season. When the Clippers faced the Jazz in L.A., when they were at full strength, it was a little bit different story for the Jazz And what we've seen. They struggled uh, to get a lot of offensive flow at, at times, uh, and conversely, they had a hard time slowing down the Clippers uh, with their talented roster as well. It, was that a, a, a blueprint? I mean, I, I saw a lot of people saying, oh, that's the blueprint about how to beat the Jazz, but I don't know how many other teams can do what the Clippers do when they're at full strength. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was that just a, a one-night anomaly, maybe just a bad night for the Jazz, facing a really good Clippers and motivated Clippers team? Or is that really uh, a blueprint that Utah needs to be concerned about? Yeah, I mean, let's say some from column A, some from column B. I, I wrote about that game the other day. Um, I wrote about it on Monday in my weekly column to just basically say, like, look, as good as the Clippers are, and you're right, they do have some uh, – they do have some unique talent in terms of just an ability to, to disrupt what Utah's ball handlers want to do. But as good as they are, Utah still won the shot selection battle on both ends of the floor, meaning they still got a lot of threes, and in particular, a decent number of catch-and-shoot threes, um, which is a higher percentage shot for them. They just, instead of making their regular 39% on catch-and-shoot threes, they shot 20% in that game against the Clippers. And that's just random variance, right? Like Joe Ingles is wide open. He shoots a three, it airballs. That's just like something that's going to happen randomly throughout the season. But sure. over time, you can trust that he's going to shoot 40 plus percent on that shot. And then on the other end, the Jazz were really able to dictate to the Clippers. They denied them the rim. They ran them off the three point line. They forced them into a bunch of mid range shots, which, 
you know, it's the least efficient shot in basketball, and it's a shot that the Clippers make 42% of the time. That night, the Clippers made 65% of their long twos. So some of it just comes down to, you know, random make-or-miss nature of the NBA. And I don't say that to, like, discredit the win. The Clippers had a great game. They they made more plays. They did more things, and they, they won that basketball game legitimately. I'm just saying that if if things have to go that wrong for Utah and that right for an opponent for it to be a four-point loss on the road against an elite team, I think, again, that just speaks to the fact that that if you close the door on the Utah Jazz, they'll sneak in through the window. Like, they just find ways to keep games competitive for the most part. And then looking at the uh, second half of the Utah Jazz schedule now as it comes out uh, earlier today, Utah Jazz have, was given, I guess, the easiest schedule, one of the easiest schedules in the league uh, to end this season, but they travel probably more than anybody else does. Does it even out that the traveling, but yet the easy schedule, or do you not think it affects the Jazz at all? No, I think there's an. I think it definitely affects them. Um, I think what's good about their second half travel is that um, a lot of it is consolidated. Right, they have like one big Eastern trip to sort of finish off their their remaining road dates with Eastern Conference teams, and then a lot of the a lot of the travel outside of that one trip is like you know, let's zoom down to Phoenix and face the Suns. Let's zoom out to. LA and face the Lakers twice or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, kind of short flights and, and closer opponents. So I actually looking at the schedule, I didn't think it was that grueling in terms of travel. There are a lot of road dates, but, but I think the travel is manageable. The, the amount of just like how many times you have to literally get on a plane and sit on a plane for five hours is going to be pretty manageable. And then the other thing that, that Ken Clayton, who also writes for salt city hoops, um, he, he noted today uh, in an article on the site is that the Jazz have a whopping 14 games remaining against teams that are significantly below 500. So we're not even talking about like, you know, the, the Celtics who are 15 and 16. We're talking about like the Thunder, the Rockets, the Kings. The Jazz have 14 games left among that level of opponent. They've done most of their heavy, not all of it. They have a couple games left against the Lakers, like I said, but they've done most of their heavy lifting against the league's elite. So they really get to chow down now in the second half on, on a lot of, let's call them middling teams to bad teams. And, and like I say, 14 left against the, the quote unquote bad teams is, is certainly going to give them a chance to, to, you know, maybe pad their lead and, and hang on to number one if that's what's in the cards. Dan Clayton with Salt City Hoops uh, talking about the Utah Jazz, uh, the second half of the schedule released, also all-star announcements made. Uh, Donovan Mitchell announcing that he's going to be participating in the three-point shootout. Uh, certainly, uh, if if I were to choose one jazz man from the, uh, uh, to go participate in the three-point shootout, it probably wouldn't be Donovan Mitchell. Eric's taking George Yank, by the way, if he, if he could. Well, who would be the best to participate, do you think? Considering well, the circumstances and the style of play that you need to be competitive in that type of contest. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Part of it is that they're trying to limit the number of guys who go to Atlanta for that event. So a lot of the field for those, those side events is coming from who's already there for the All-Star game. So that's part of it. I think, you know, like, look, Donovan, I think he, he's, a, he's quick. So part of the three-point contest is you got to be able to get 
your shot up quickly and get from rack to rack quickly. And that may be the advantage he would have over, say, a Joe Ingles, who has a better raw shooting percentage. I'd like to see Bogey. Like, I think Bogey's stroke is pure enough that if he gets, you know, there's, there's stroke shooters and then there's streak shooters. Like, CJ Miles, the old jazz forward, he was a streak shooter. Like, he would make 10 in a row and then he would miss nine in a row. Right. Um, stroke shooters, I, I think, you know, once they, once they figure it out, once they kind of get locked in, they can be really consistent. So I think he could be good in a three-point contest. And then I'm probably, I mean, Jordan Clarkson would be fun, but I don't think he's their best pure shooter. I think their best pure shooter is probably, probably Bogey or Jingles. Hey, speaking of George Yang, I have been bagging on the guy since, well, he ever got drafted. Um, <laughs> and I have just never been a fan of him. Can you straighten me up here? and help me out with why George Nying has been a valuable member of this Utah Jazz squad? You know, here's the thing I think with Nying, because, you know, I've had, I've had my doubts. I also think that, like, right now he's in his proper role. He's the ninth man on this team. Like, I think part of the problem with, with prior years George Nying is that he's been asked to be, you know, the seventh man some years, or, or then, like, Mike Conley misses some games, and now he's the sixth man for a few games. And, I, you know, I think that's a little uncomfortable. And if the Jazz get a, a couple of key injuries in the second half of the season, then they may have to deal with that again. But, but George Nying is a, is a good limited minutes kind of player. He can, if he is your ninth man and you just need him for 13 to 15 minutes a night, he, he, look, he's going to come in and he's going to knock down some shots. He, he generally makes the right read with the ball in his hands. And some of that is just longevity and the fact that he's been in Quinn Snyder's system. So he knows how to anticipate what the defense is going to, you know, where the defense is going to try to pinch or shut down a, a particular action. And he's ready for that. And he, he almost always makes the right basketball play in that sense. And the other thing that I think isn't being talked about enough this year is I think he's really improved in a team defensive concept. And I say team because he's still not a guy that you'd be like, oh, hey, there's LeBron. Go shut down LeBron. He's not a great individual defender, but he is, you know, almost always in the right place. He stunts correctly when he's supposed to stunt another, you know, stunt someone else's drive to help out on a driver. He rotates well off the ball. Um, when he's supposed to stay in front, he does a pretty good job staying in front. There are times when the Jazz know that the guard has an advantage, and so they just ask the George Niangs of the world to, to try to channel them. Cause they know that like, you know, George Niang isn't going to stay in front of Trey young on a switch, for example. So, so then his job is like, just get him into Rudy, like funnel him to Rudy. And, and Niang just is doing, I think better than he ever has in the NBA at doing that kind of stuff. Just making sure that like, look, you can get beat as an NBA defender. You can get beat, right? This is the age of like hand checking isn't allowed. So, you know, if you, unless you have elite lateral quickness, Guys are going to get around you sometimes. That's okay. You can get beat as long as you're playing well within the team's idea of what they want to do. And I think George has really allowed them to do that, which is one of the reasons why he has one of the best net ratings on the team. He, he just he knows what to do. He's a professional at this point. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Rudy Gobert. This is a guy who defensively has been elite for some time. But yeah. how he has improved his offensive game and how much of an impact he is offensively for the Jazz. Uh, that's been one of the things that's really impressed me about his development uh, this year and his impact with this team. Uh, I mean, what, I mean, I don't know what, I mean, where's the ceiling for this guy? What more can he do? Certainly he doesn't have like an outside game, but how much of an impact has he made 
for the Utah Jazz in an offensive sense. I know everybody's talking about the three-point shooting this yeah. year, but Rudy offensively has really improved his game, and I think that makes a big impact too. Yeah, you're exactly right, Eric. And, you know, part of it is, like, there were plays the other night against, um, against Charlotte. And, again, historic night from three, right? So you're thinking, oh, well, that means that George Gang was hot and Joe Ingles was hot, and, and they were. Like, all those guys were hot. But if you go back and look at the plays, you'll find a lot of plays where Rudy Gobert never touches the ball, and yet he's the reason why two or three different guys were open on the same play, and the Jazz were just choosing between open three-point shots. Because teams are so terrified of his role that they, you know, what Charlotte was doing, and I'm not sure that it was necessarily a smart defensive decision given the Jazz's personnel, but they they were bringing in a weak side helper on Rudy every single time even before the pass went, like even if the pass never went to Rudy, they were so terrified of him getting on top of the rim that that defender was coming in every time. Well, then there's a really easy pass for the ball handler to make. That's a really easy read. If you know that every time the help is coming and it's coming from there, then you just throw the ball to that guy in that corner and he either shoots or someone closes out on him. And then he, you know, he passes the ball and the jazz get into what they call the blender where it's pass, 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 and someone's open and and that's what Rudy does. He's such a threat. You know, he's he's led the league in uh in field goal percentage for the last four seasons combined. He he's you know, it's easy to say like, oh, the guy just dunks. Well, yeah, everybody would just dunk if they could. Like if if any if everybody in the NBA was good enough to just dunk all the time, they would cuz that's the most efficient shot. So because teams know that Rudy is is good at that particular shot, go to that particular skill, not just dunking the basketball, but like getting open on rolls and finishing on rolls and finishing through contact. And he's even gotten better with some one and two dribble moves so that you can, you can now throw him the ball and pick and roll a little higher. Like you can throw him the ball at the free throw line and he'll still find a way to score in traffic. And, and that's a new development in his game in the last year or two, because of all of that, that I just said, you know, teams are scared of him. Teams are teams panic and they send extra guys and that's what has led to a lot of Utah's prolific three-point shooting this season. Give me your thoughts on Quinn Snyder this year. Yeah, I think what you said before, Ajay, is right. I think he's uh, he's right there in the coach of the year race. Um, that's, a, that's an award that tends to be a little bit more subjective than some of the others, right? Like sixth man usually goes to whoever is the leading bench scorer in the NBA. MVP usually goes to the best superstar from a really, you know, from a top three team, um, coach of the year. Some years it goes to like whose team overperformed. Some years it goes to like Greg Popovich in the, in the Spurs heyday when, you know, your, your team was expected to smash everybody and you came out and smashed everybody. So here's an award, Greg Popovich. Sometimes it's kind of did more with less. But no matter which way you slice it, I think Quinn Snyder has a solid case, right? Like people expected them to be good, but not this good. Um, they're probably going to finish the season in the top, you know, whatever, the top three or four in the league. They, there might be some slippage. We'll, we'll have to see as other teams get healthy. And, and certainly the first half of the season has been weird for some teams with, with COVID related absences and whatever. But, you know, they're, they're going to finish, they're going to finish really high in the standings. They're, they will have surprised everybody. They'll go into the postseason as as a as a real contender, and so I think you know he the narrative, the team record, all that stuff favors Quinn. I think he has a real shot, and and I think he's just ensconcing himself further as 
kind of a no-brainer pick as a as a top you know five or six coach in the NBA. I don't know that there's that many guys. If you were just gonna, if you put all thirty head coaches in a in a in a coach draft because you were starting a new league and and you wanted to decide where thirty coaches were gonna work, I think Quinn Snyder would go pretty dang high in that draft. Hey, I did want to ask you. Sorry, Shaq Harrison was released today. Are you surprised by it, or did you see it coming? Uh, I mean, I'm not surprised by it in the sense that like they they weren't using Shaq, which is kind of too bad. I liked Shaq. I liked that signing. I I think he was um, he's interesting in that there's only a finite number of players who um, who can defend the ball well and who can make open three point shots. But he just he never really put it together for the Jazz. Part of that is because he only played in garbage time. So you know, whatever. He was like the 14th man and. Quinn Snyder doesn't really get beyond 10 or 11 in his rotation. So that part doesn't surprise me. The only reason it surprises me a little bit that they just waived him instead of maybe seeing if, uh, if there was another team that could use him is um, there's a, there's a maneuver that jazz could have done where they could have maybe stayed out of the luxury tax this season. If they had traded Shaquille Harrison and one other small contract, um, but it doesn't look like that's their plan now since they waived him. I won't get into the math because nobody wants to listen to math on the radio. But, <laughs> um, but bottom line is, you know, they, they could have maybe stayed out of the tax now. I don't think that that's their plan. Um, and in a weird way, I kind of think Ryan Smith, the new jazz owner, wants – I think he wants to announce himself to the NBA. I think he wants people to know, like, hey, this is a little different era and we're not going to – you know, we're not going to worry too much about the money if, if the team's in a good place. So, um, so yeah, maybe them letting him go was just an acknowledgement that like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to trade a, a Juwan Morgan or, a, or an Elijah Hughes to another team just to save money when, you know, when they're ostensibly on their way to a, to a top two or top three seed in the West, like that, you know, so um, so that's the only element that kind of caught me a little off guard there, but obviously Shaq wasn't, he just wasn't playing. And doesn't it also signal their, their faith and, uh, in support of Mie Oni and what he's been able to do and how he's grown? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a little different role, right? I think part of the reason they signed Shaq was because, um, you know, frankly, they, they weren't, I don't know that they were totally pleased with what they saw from Nigel Williams Goss in training camp. So they thought, okay, well, if we're going to, if we're going to carry sort of a third emergency point guard, let's have it be someone who's been in the NBA a little bit and, and, um, you know, can do some of those things defensively. And that's why they brought in Shaq. And I don't know that Mie fills that role, but again, I think, I think Mie Oni and Jawan Morgan too. I mean, Jawan Morgan is a, is a little different player. He, he, um, you know, when he plays at the big man spot, Utah plays a little differently on defense and, and that's something that Quinn Snyder has been reluctant to do in past years. But I think, he, you know, the Jazz have played well enough the few times that they've had to look to those two guys, Oni and Morgan, for rotation minutes. But that they, that I think that's part of what forces their hand and makes them go like, yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna just give a player away to avoid the tax when like we have, you know, eleven or twelve players that they really believe in in the short term, plus they've got, you know, obviously a couple of projects in terms of their, their recent draft picks. So I, I think that might be what it says is, is just that, um, you know, Hey, me, he looks, honestly, he looks like a guy who could get rotation minutes right now and be successful just because, um, you know, he plays high quality defense 
and he can make open threes. That's all he has to do on offense. If he can just hit an open kickout three and keep defending the way he has, then the guy's going to play in the NBA for 10 years or more. I mean, that's, that's an extremely valuable skill set at his size. Dan, you've been more than generous with your time. I do got one final question for you, though. Uh, Mike Conley, after the year, uh, you know, you talked about the luxury tax. Does Mike Conley need to take a bite into his contract, into his pay, <laughs> if he wants to stick around with the Jazz? Or, I mean, how do you handle this situation? Yeah, I mean, I'll try to make this the short answer, too, because, again, like, no one wants to hear contracts. Hey, I do. I'm all about math the- and numbers when it comes to <laughs> NBA stuff, so let it rip. So, so look, um, Mike's coming off a year where he's going to make $34 million. I think he knows he's not getting that in this next phase of his career. He's heading into his mid-30s. And, and so I think he knows that his, that his next contract is going to look a little different. The Jazz can still comfortably pay him more than anybody else just because they have his bird rights. So, so they can keep him. Um, they will pay a corresponding luxury tax if they keep him. So, you know, at a certain point, every dollar they pay Mike is going to cost them two or three times that in salary plus taxes. Um, and so that's something to keep an eye on. I, I think that, I think that, look, he's just been too important for them to not try to keep him. And I think what's encouraging is that nobody else that can really offer him that kind of money is in a position to remotely be considered contenders. So it's mostly teams like Charlotte who, you know, Charlotte and Chicago can create cap space. Um, but I'm not sure he wants to go to Charlotte or Chicago at this juncture of his career. If he chose, if he chooses to go to like Milwaukee or one of the LA teams, then he's going to take a big pay cut because they're only going to be able to pay him exception money. And then, so I think the only thing the jazz fans really have to worry about is there might be teams. And the two examples that come to mind are like Miami and Dallas. So those are two teams who they purposely saved their money so that they can make a free agency run at Giannis Antetokounmpo this summer, and then Giannis extended instead. So now they have all this money sitting there that they planned to use to make a run at an all-NBA player, and, you know, they got, it's got to go somewhere. So, um, and now Dallas and Miami are not great teams right now. They're, they're both kind of trudging around 500, but um, they're better situations than the Charlottes or Chicago's of the world. So I do think that that's a kind of situation where, you know, that's what I think could potentially be scary for the Jazz and their fans is if Mike Conley gets a phone call from one of those teams that has a boatload of money and is good enough that, that if they add Mike Conley, they could be interesting. But, but certainly, I don't know that they'd be, you know, Jazz-level good. The Jazz are 25 and 6 right now. So, you know, it'd, it'd be hard to, to beat that basketball situation. Um, but again, they can, those are the teams who can sort of back up a Brinks truck and then promise Mike at least a, a playoff run. Right. That's good. That's stuff. Yeah. Very interesting. That's good stuff. Well, uh, Dan, we really appreciate your time. Always appreciate reading with the stuff that you put together, uh, in multiple different places and remind folks uh, where they can find some of the stuff that you put together. Yeah. So I write at saltcityhoops.com, um, and manage that website. A lot of great work going up lately. Um, and then I tweet at Dan Clayton, but with a zero for the O, so Dan Clayton, zero N on Twitter. And, um, yeah, that's about it. But Dan, thanks so much. Always great insight about the Utah Jazz. Thanks for your time tonight and enjoy the game. Hey, great stuff, Dan. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Take care.